This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When police in Pakistan showed up to former Prime Minister Imran Khan's house in Lahore last week to arrest him, things quickly spiraled out of control. What ensued was a violent standoff. The house was surrounded by his supporters. They were camped out outside saying that they wouldn't let the arrest happen. Some of them threw bricks and rocks at police. Others used iron rods and slingshots. And officers fought with clubs, rubber bullets, and tear gas. Imran Khan, a former cricket star turned politician, was kicked out of parliament after a no-confidence vote last April. And since then, he and his supporters have been demanding an early election so that he could be voted back in. Meanwhile, Khan's been slapped with over 80 criminal charges, from corruption to terrorism to rioting, all of which he claims are politically motivated. They are trying to do everything to get me out of the race. In the last year, tens of thousands of Pakistanis have taken to the streets to show their support for Imran Khan. Now that support has escalated into violent clashes with police around the country, and it doesn't look like it's going to die down anytime soon. I've been here since last night for Khan, and I'll be here for two days, four days, or many more days if needed. This week on the show, we're going to look at why Imran Khan is such a polarizing figure in Pakistan, the reasons his following has become so fanatical, and what this all might mean for the country's political future. I'm Tamara Kandakar, and this is Nothing is Foreign. Rahim Shamsi is a political commentator and director of the Center of Excellence in Journalism at the IBA University in Karachi. Hi, Amber. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. So I'll just jump right in. Um, so we've seen over the last year these massive protests and rallies by Imran Khan supporters, but 
It seems like things really hit a peak last week when police tried to arrest him at his house and ended up in this sort of violent confrontation with supporters. And then they also clashed with police outside of a courthouse Imran Khan was supposed to go to on Saturday. Can we start with why police were trying to arrest him? Police were trying to arrest Imran Khan because there are several cases against him. And in this particular instance, he had not appeared before court. The court had summoned him uh, quite a number of times. Uh, But Imran Khan, citing security concerns because there was an assassination attempt on him late last year, the court, I would also like to add, has not really conceded to Imran Khan or uh, his lawyer's demands for virtual appearances. But, uh, you know, uh, Pakistani justice system as it is uh, summoned him. Uh, He did not appear. The court sent an order to the police that you need to bring him to court. So the arrest was really about an appearance that he needed to make before court. So the charges that he was supposed to show up to court for were about profits from the sale of gifts that he got when he was prime minister that he allegedly didn't declare. But those charges are among many others that he's facing, right? Can you tell me about what else Imran Khan's been accused of? You know, there are terrorism cases against him. Uh, For instance, there are cases of obstruction of justice. I I mean, I I think there are dozens of cases I've actually lost track. One of the more important, crucial ones, and there are a couple here, is, for instance, about one of his alleged daughters, Tyrion White. Back in the day when Imran Khan had a more sort of playboy reputation as well, there was a lady who claimed that she'd born a child. It was Imran Khan's child. And, you know, that matter was settled in a California court. According to Pakistani law, you're meant to declare, you know, all your assets and your children and dependents and all of those things, um, you know, when you submit uh, paperwork for for elections. Uh, And he did not declare his alleged daughter. That's another case against him. Those are some of the serious cases. I would say there are a lot of other politically motivated cases as well, uh, which tells you Imran Khan is on the wrong side of the state. Right. That's what he says in response to a lot of these charges, right? He says that they're all politically motivated. He said that even this arrest attempt was a way for the government to essentially put him in jail so that he could not run in the next election. And I wonder how much truth do you think there is to that? I think there's a degree of truth to it, to be honest. Imran Khan is a populist leader, is also now a popular leader. Even though former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan is embroiled in court cases, he still seems to be very popular among the people. According to an opinion poll, the chief of Pakistan Tehreek-e Insaf has been rated positively by more than 60% of the people in the country. And while he was in government between 2018 to 2022, his performance wasn't, you know, he, he didn't fulfill a lot of the promises he made. And we saw his popularity graph drop a little. Since his ouster in April, um, he's actually, you know, become extremely popular. And the current uh, government that led the vote of no confidence against him and who has seen a massive drop in, in their popularity simply because food inflation is touching 40 percent, which doesn't seem to be managing either the economy well or politics really well. Um, and, and it does feel a little like in order to prevent Imran Khan from either winning or gaining more seats than he could, perhaps this is one way. Uh, on the other hand, I will say that this is also a kind of a cycle of political revenge that I see, because while Imran Khan was in power, uh, he put many of these leaders who are now in power behind bars, accused them of corruption and, and demonstrated a sort of um, vengeful streak himself. So it feels a little like the cycle has changed, the faces have changed before it was the current 
group of parties who were on target, and now it's Imran Khan. Right. And even when he was ousted last year in that no confidence vote, he said repeatedly that he was the victim of a conspiracy between the current government, the military and the United States. Although since then, he's walked those comments back and the U.S. and the government have always denied those claims. What we've seen since then is these incredible scenes of people in the streets rallying in support of him. Security is high after tens of thousands of people across the country answered Khan's call to protest against his removal from office. Can you describe a little bit what these rallies have looked like and tell us what these supporters have been calling for? Uh, Imran Khan supporters really, like Imran Khan, have been calling for immediate elections. As soon as Imran Khan was ousted in April 2022, we saw some spontaneous protests across the country. Um, he does have a fan base, a loyal fan base, and they were obviously upset uh, about him being ousted. Imran Khan has tapped into some of that anger and outrage by leading many, many rallies, and many of them have been very, very well attended. By the time the assassination attempt against him had happened, I think he'd led over 60, 70 rallies. One of Pakistan's most popular and influential politicians, Imran Khan, has survived a gun attack on his protest march. The 70-year-old, who was ousted as prime minister in April, was giving a speech in Wazirabad when the gunman opened fire. Videos from the scene show him being rushed away in a vehicle to hospital. His PTI party spokesperson says he was hit in the shin and that four others were injured. He also led two long marches, and this is really key. Imran Khan was also interested, as far as I could see, because of the urgency of the rallies and the two long marches he held until November, because November was a very key date in Pakistan's political schedule, you could say. That's because there was a new army chief coming in, and because the army and the armed military establishment is actually the sort of center, the locus of power in Pakistan. Imran Khan was not prime minister when this new appointment was being made, and he was very keen on having a say because he knew where real power lies. I wonder if we can take a step back for a bit because we've mentioned a lot of things that I want to just unpack a little bit. And and I want to understand why so many people are so devoted to him. So before Imran Khan went into politics, he was a very beloved cricket player who won Pakistan its first Cricket World Cup. But how did he end up winning the election in 2018? And what were sort of the policies and political ideals that he ran on? Well, Imran Khan, when he launched his political career, and I was um, in college, university back then, you know, he was a huge hero because he'd won a World Cup, uh, Pakistan's only World Cup, and we're a cricket-mad country as well. Back home with Imran Khan. It is clearly a case of hail the conquering cricket hero. Amazing, the World Cup fever. He'd started a hospital in the name of his mother, um, you know, philanthropy. He'd created a lot of goodwill. There was a lot of young people who obviously wanted to be him or in, in case of women, wanted to marry him, uh, you know, things like that. It's, it's a usual. He also had a reputation as a playboy. He'd just married a white woman. 
Do you see this marriage as a turning away from the life that you may have led in other parts of the world? You mean uh, a playboy? Is you that said what you... it. You said it. You mentioned a headline to me earlier. What was it? Love rat in the papers? Romeo rat. A <laughs> Romeo rat. Romeo rat. Did you think you were was... marrying a Romeo rat? <laughs> um, well, I, I hoped I wasn't. I don't think you're a Romeo rat. Uh, you know, brown man brings a white woman home after being with lots of women and celebrities and all of those things, leading this lifestyle. Um, and he started talking about how he had had been born again, you know, a, a Muslim again. You know, back then, and I think this is what, 97, 98, there were a lot of people within the middle class, obviously, who liked Imran Khan, who supported him and who thought that perhaps he could be an alternative. But until 2011, I would say, Imran Khan really didn't make much of a huge dent electorally. He won one seat, um, maybe a few more after that. He boycotted the 2008 elections uh, that were held just after we had a military dictatorship. And uh, 2013, you know, a lot of people thought he had a strong chance, but he didn't win that election as well. He had the third most seats in parliament in 2013. But I think what, what happened during that period is Imran Khan's supporters and followers, many of them have been loyal, but he has really built his support base, you know, through a number of means. He realized that you can't just win an election based on, on new faces, that you need what are called electables in Pakistan. Uh, these are people who have short, short winning chances within their constituencies because of their family connections uh, or because they've been affiliated with, you know, um, a certain group, business group or tribal group. He also sort of built his party up uh, 2011 onwards through support of sections of the military establishment at that time as well. Several um, army chiefs, and these, this has been documented in, in various books and people have been witnesses to that part of Pakistan's history. And, and, and you know, let's bear in mind as well that many of these people who we called electables are also very um, susceptible to a push from the military establishment on who to sort of, you know, align with. So it's, it's been a combination of organic growth and inorganic growth, I would say. He talks a lot about the status quo, but we need to remember, even if he is against the status quo of some sort, um, he really believed that the military or a partnership with the military was the way to go. He would accuse the older dynastic parties in power at that time of being against the military uh, and, and, and claiming that that was obviously a kind of disloyalty to the country as well. So you could clearly see that there was an ecosystem and an understanding between Imran Khan and the military establishment or factions with the military establishment at that time. I wonder, for people who are unfamiliar with the role that the military plays in Pakistan, can you just briefly explain that? Like, I, I know, you know, this stems from three decades of the military being in power, but what role do they play now? And why is it that you need the military support in order to be like a real player in Pakistani politics? The Pakistani military, even when it hasn't directly been in power, as you pointed out, there have been military dictatorships uh, before this as well. The last one ended in 2008, has really been a key central player. According to the Constitution of Pakistan, military officers are also sworn by their oath, which says you can't interfere in political affairs, essentially. Um, but that's not how it's worked out, even when there's been a civilian face or a civilian government. Uh, the military has played an outsized role in foreign policy. 
Uh, the military also has a lot of, uh, I would say, a financial interests as well. Um, huge chunk of the budget goes to the military. It isn't just in terms of hardware or software or whatever, military hardware. It's also in terms of uh, pensions and salaries and, and where military officers are placed. The military has also um, has a, has a keen interest in, in the media as well, clearly, because obviously they have needed, just, just like in Hollywood, you have a Pentagon supporting movies like Top Gun because it's, it's great for recruitment. Uh, you know, in Pakistan, it goes a little step further as well, where I think the news media has also been factionalized, I would say, directly by the military establishment. Intelligence uh, officers, you know, intelligence agencies um, have not just been keeping an eye on the borders and what's happening coming in from Pakistan, you know, given that Pakistan is a security state, it sees India as a big threat, but it also has kept an eye on dissidents and political parties. The point is that the military has helped political parties, it's destroyed political parties. So the military shadow is, falls across every sphere of political and economic life. December 2017, Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. So Imran Khan rose to power with the support of the military, but I want to also just go back and explore the cult of personality around him a bit more. When I think of other political leaders that have these really devoted followings, they tend to be these really charismatic characters and they know how to talk to people in a way that makes them feel seen, right? Is there something about the way that Imran Khan communicates that stands out to you? He's an effective communicator. It's simple. He's got really simple prescriptions for all complex problems, but that's what populists do, right? And they will keep repeating it. At one point, I remember in Pakistan, uh, a lot of us had what was called the Imran Khan bingo, which is we knew that he would use this phrase. It would be about his cricket. It would be about being a Muslim. It would be about, um, you know, all those things. You know, I think Imran Khan has spoken, he's written a book as well about his story and his turn to religion and why he thinks it's better and why Western values are bad. But he's also used this politically as well. Khan also pushed toward religion and the right. He's expressed support for Islamist politicians and strict Islamic law, earning him the nickname Taliban Khan. And he took aim at the... And so whenever he made a speech, we're going to tick off all of the sort of typical things that Imran Khan would say. He would talk about corruption and all of those things. So Imran Khan really just appealed, especially because, you know, uh, people are aspirational, right? Uh, in many ways, he appealed to the middle class. He appealed to the urban population. He appealed to young people simply because of aspiration, because they thought that he was the antidote to many political parties where um, the top leadership is dynastic, uh, the top leadership is corrupt, for instance. And Imran Khan used all of this. Even post the vote of no confidence, he knew exactly what button to push. 
anti-Americanism. There's a deep vein of anti-Americanism and conspiracy uh, theories that run through Pakistan. Um, and he claimed that um, the current set of political parties and the army chief that he used to love when he was in power uh, said that he had conspired with the U.S. in order to oust him because he didn't want uh, the Americans to have access to military bases in Pakistan. All we are saying is there are two problems. One is that this is an imposed government through a, a regime change by Washington. Number two, they're criminals. 60% of the cabinet is on bail. He's created villains. He's created a story. That's what gives him that base. That's what makes people follow him because they feel that he is the solution, even though he doesn't offer any concrete solutions. He also seems to have a lot of support from the Pakistani diaspora. How important is that and why is that, do you think? So Imran Khan has a, has a lot of support in the Pakistani diaspora because many of them see him as the alternative, as many urban Pakistanis or apolitical Pakistanis, I would call them. Um, uh, you know, they, they think he's, he's the best alternative. He also has obviously created a sort of fundraising network for his um, cancer hospital, um, named after his, his mother. Um, and he's also, you know, traveled a lot. Again, it's the international appeal where a lot of people feel that, you know, he speaks to both audiences, domestic as well as international. Um, so I think that the support base has been key. I mean, he's been pushing for an easier way for the diaspora to vote in the elections as well. At the moment, it's a mail-in vote, which is obviously cumbersome. He wants it to make it electronic. But given that the current coalition government and the election commission of Pakistan has tried an experiment. Not a lot of people voted and they feel like there needs to be more during this. You know, they, they can see that there is a diaspora vote that might go in Imran Khan's favor. So that's been put on hold as well. When he was elected prime minister in 2018, Imran Khan ran on this image as a political outsider. He said he was going to bring in this new age of accountability to Pakistani politics. But if you look back at his track record, how do you think it stacks up against what he promised? I really do wish Imran Khan had five years because honestly, the three and a half years to four years that he was in power was quite a disappointment on many fronts. Uh, Imran Khan promised to strengthen uh, democracy in parliament. However, in his many interviews, he's admitted that, you know, the intelligence chief and the intelligence agencies that had helped bring him to power used to help him to get votes in parliament. So essentially what you're saying is seeing a sort of really, really dysfunctional parliament. Ordinances upon ordinances instead of, you know, the consensus building that you need to pass laws. He would never sit on the table with any of his opponents. Uh, and that's that's not how democracy or politics ought to work. Uh, Imran Khan's record on, I think, uh, COVID-19 was actually pretty good. Um, I think they, he was very clear that there shouldn't be lockdowns. Um, many of us were critics, including myself, I'd confess, but I think they managed that because his assertion was that uh, it would damage the economy. Uh, so lockdowns were limited and that strategy kind of worked as well. So we kind of rode that. However, he really couldn't settle on an economic policy. We had uh, four finance ministers during his tenure. So the reforms that he promised never happened, the economic reforms. He promised police reforms. That never happened. I'd say that he tried, I think, to expand the um, social protection network, which is called the Benazir Income Support Program, which was positive. So a couple of positives, more negatives. I think his, his tenure was marked by a lot of, um, you know, he promised on his, in his first speech, I, I remember, um, how he said accountability will begin with me and my ministers. It didn't, you know, many of those cases that could potentially have been corruption cases 
um, just went went sort of slowly during his tenure. They're picked up when the new government came in, but cases against his rivals, you know, they sped up. They were all put in jail. The point I'm trying to make is that his record was largely, I think, disappointing. There is supposed to be an election held by October of this year. Um, Imran Khan obviously wants an earlier election and says that if there was one held right now, he would win. Regardless of what happens, I wonder, what do you think the events of this last year could mean for Pakistan's stability in the near future? You know, it's hard to predict, but I do think that Imran Khan's popularity has really surged uh, in the last year since he was ousted from power. And uh, he could take a number of seats, you know, I think more than we expected. Uh, That's also true. But we won't know until there's a real election. Uh, uh, We've had several by-elections in which he's won back several seats or he's demonstrated him and his party's popularity, which I think obviously gives him confidence that he would win an election. But I think that this current government uh, is really resisting and I would say include in this current government, I wouldn't say just the, the, the 11 or 12 political parties that are part of the coalition, but also the military establishment really seem to be resistant to the idea of holding an election at this point. He dissolved two provincial assembly seats in order to trigger a general election. Uh, and the Election Commission of Pakistan and all the sort of stakeholders involved in holding an election through security, personnel, money, funding, finance, you know, that all comes from the state and the government in power. They've been reluctant to give those resources. So it feels like even whether Imran Khan becomes a prime minister again is hard to say until a general election. We don't know when that's going to happen. And I would also say that his popularity um, so far can only be tested in a general election. What if he doesn't win the number of seats that he thinks he deserves, as in 2013? Does that mean we'll see more violence and his supporters will act out like Bolsonaro's supporters or Trump's supporters? You know, I, I think there's a high likelihood given the events of the last few months and over the course of the last year. Amber, it was such a pleasure talking to you. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta and our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you liked this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandaker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.